Thanks for listening to Reawaken, creating community and meaningful action to shift paradigms in mental health, trauma and addiction, a podcast by The Humane Clinic. Hosted by Matt Ball and Stephanie Mitchell and produced by me, Rory Ritchie, aka Producer Dan. Incidental music by yours truly and our theme song is Hope by the talented Addo Mull. Everywhere people, in every place, all of the countries and each race need your hope. That's what this word is in need. Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed. Hope is the thing that stops you bleed. Okay, hello, we're back for another Reawaken podcast. I'm here with Stephanie Mitchell. Hi. And uh, producer Dan. Hello. Uh, and I'm Matt Ball. So um, we're back again and we're going to talk a little bit today about um, when, when we go and see someone in the mental health system or for, for mental health support or, or whatever, uh, there seems to be different experiences mm. of moments. And one of the things that was interesting to me was when do professionals suddenly turn to the models of CBT or DBT or uh, Freudian analysis or, mm-hmm. or, or this model's the best or that model's the best and move away from just being human with each other? Because mm-hmm. all the research always says it's about the therapeutic relationship or about the relationship. Mm. And we all talk about that and then we all go and use models, whether it's prescribing mm-hmm. drugs or a particular psychotherapy or a group therapy or mm-hmm. skills training or whatever. And I kind of think, what is that? And the best clue I've got is Pete Sanders' chapter in the book Drop the Disorder, mm-hmm. which is edited by Joe Watson. If you want to read a really cool book with lots of contributors, lived experience, clinical professionals and others, it's a great book. Um, Pete talks about this intervention diagnosis. And it's at the point where you use interventions and, and specific models that you're actually falling back into the old trap of the diagnostic model. Mm. So you don't have to say to someone, oh, you've got this disorder or that disorder. But by using an, in quote, evidence-based intervention, mm. you're kind of attaching it to that concept mm-hmm. that, that underlying whatever the difficulty is, oh, well, we know what mental health problems are, they're disorders, they're discrete, distinct and different to one another, which of course is not true. Mm. But that's, um, that's been on my mind. So in, if you're going to someone for support and you're the supporter, if, you, if you're being a supporter to someone and someone comes to you for support, when it goes quiet in a moment and you don't know what to say, why do we bring in interventions mm-hmm. in that moment? And I think it's because we're uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so, I mean, I've, I'm wanting to clarify a little mm. bit what you're saying, but I also want to just pick up on that last point. I know in my work... I noticed myself trying to be helpful. Mm. So it's kind of like in that moment yeah. of discomfort, I'm like, uh-oh, I'm supposed to do something here. Yes. You know, I'm supposed to be helpful. Yeah. There's something that I'm supposed to do. And the, the what has helped me so much in my work has been when I really kind of realised it's not my job to be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> it's my job to sit back and and be with the person but knowing that they are the ones who kind of – know how to navigate through this if I'm just with them. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's, you know, you wanted to clarify, and I think you've clarified through explaining it more clearly. Mm. <laughs> yeah. that, that's exactly it. How do I sit there and not suddenly need to assume some sort of control, wisdom, knowledge, power? Yeah, I think what I wanted to clarify with Pete Sanders and what you were saying is, is he sort of saying that um, – the diagnosis and all those things and the mental illness and um, kind of 
this othering that happens, does mm. that is he sort of saying that the moment us professionals start to sort of think this thing happening about I have to be helpful, I have to bring in some sort of a skill or a technique or a model, that that's when we sort of um, finding places of, of othering and we go down that path? Or is it, I just want to... Well, in, in the bit that I was referring to, no, he was okay. he was talking about psych diagnosis, which is a traditional diagnosis, yeah. the way we do it, medication, psychiatric assessment, formulation and, and stuff. And then then my reading of it was that he was talking about intervention diagnosis. So when we, we say, right, come in for CBT, there's a good evidence base for CBT. Well, what's there a good evidence base for? There's a good evidence base for CBT for depression, for example. I'm not saying that, yeah. by the way. But, so actually what we're doing is we're treating depression here. So we're oh, buying into that kind of I diagnostic see what you mean. stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm loving this. So this helps me to understand. So he's basically saying the person is no longer the person. Yeah, they become they that They are the diagnosis. Even so we, we are think, only yeah. actually working with um, the diagnosis or the dilemma or the label well, I think, rather than the whole person. Well, I don't think he explicitly in this chapter okay. necessarily says that, right. but I think that's the inference I took from it as well. Right. That's yeah. right. That right. When, when we don't even see that we're working with the diagnosis, not the person, oh. is, is we sort of hide behind this, oh, well, psychological interventions are different. But they're not any different. <laughs> Because if you look at the NICE guidelines, they're all talking about disorders and interventions. Let's slow down a second. You've just said NICE guidelines. Probably nobody knows what that oh. is. Can you explain that? Well, they're, they're, they're the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, I think. They're the kind of guidelines that came in. I think that's a good point, actually. When I was doing my nurse training in 2005, I think, um, we had to know the NICE guidelines mm -hmm. and we had to know when we were writing assignments, everything mm -hmm. about it. So you've got this kind of centre that says, right, these are the evidence-based interventions for these disorders. These are the broad needs of this group of people with mm -hmm. these problems. And so there's some good in them. There is some good. And if you look, you know, we, people have been very skillful in using them healthily. Mm. But unfortunately, they do, in my view, maintain the whole sort of diagnostic mm -hmm. rant. Right. Um, and I'll give you an example. They've changed the guidelines now on antidepressant prescribing in the UK, I believe it's published, or it's certainly in the process, with the incredible work that the, some of the movement have been doing about acknowledging the harm of antidepressants and the discontinuation withdrawal syndromes. Mm. This has now made it into the clinical guidelines. Right. So what it's done is it's kind of said, okay, there is enough now for us mm. to say, you need to prescribe more carefully, and you also need to acknowledge the harm and the potential withdrawal. For example, I, I haven't read them entirely, but that's the sort of principle of it is that this is the evidence mm. for these problems. Mm -hmm. okay. So when I'm talking about the NICE guidelines, I'm yeah. talking about these kind of guidelines. In Australia, it's not the same, but the equivalent for psychosis and schizophrenia, we don't have NICE guidelines. So we have the RANS at the Royal College of New Zealand and Australian College of Psychiatry produce guidelines on schizophrenia and psychosis. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a difference there in that that's one body, i.e. the Royal College of Psychiatry, Australia is mm. in, have said, we've done this piece of work and this is how we're going to treat schizophrenia and psychosis. And that becomes the guidelines for the country. Mm. Yeah. You know? So the benefit of NICE is that at least there's a broader multidisciplinary approach okay. and they're looking at a breadth of knowledge. However, it still falls into that old story of, well, someone's ill, yes. what do we do? And that's Pete Sanders's point, mm. is that even, in, even when we're sort of trying to do our best to come from a place of caring and compassion and supposedly avoiding these yeah. labels, 
really as professionals, as psychologists and support workers and, and um, therapists, therapists and, yeah. and peer workers and social workers, we kind of get trapped back in there yeah. as soon as we're using a model to treat yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, and we, we might not even notice it. And it reminds me on Drop the Disorder Facebook page, Joe Watson put a post recently about, um, you know, calling out on, on these sort of Facebook groups and, and in our workplaces as psychotherapists and counsellors, calling out when we go back into the diagnostic stuff. And mm-hmm. you, you mentioned it on a podcast recently when you were talking about Lucy saying to you, God, Steph, did you realise what you just said there? You yeah. know, and you hadn't even noticed it. So it, it is about remaining aware yeah, that we right. are acculturated to the diagnostic framework, however much we try not to be. Mm. And of course, most professions are taught about the diagnosis. So we're, we're asking people not to do that, mm. but they've been taught to do that. Mm. And, I, you know, there was a young woman that came to the training I did on, um, well, it was about psychosis, but it was about the fact that psychosis doesn't really exist. Yeah. And she was a psychologist and had a beautiful conversation with her afterwards because she was saying, I've just read this book, I think it's called a, a, On Becoming a Person. And, and so I smiled a lot when she said it because it's a Carl Rogers, is a classic. And she, we were talking and we got to the point where I said, did you find before you trained, you used to just be more comfortable just sitting and being with a person and listening? And she just lit up mm-hmm. and said, yeah, yeah. Gosh, what's happened? Mm. And, and it's not a criticism of her or anyone particularly, but what she was describing was, as I trained to become a clinical professional, mm. I lost what are basic human skills of connection. I think that's what we hear in our trainings when we go around the country and mm. teach, is people go, oh, thank goodness you're, we're allowed to be human. Yeah. You didn't come in here with a model or an idea of how it's supposed to be or what we're supposed to do. We're just are going in asking, what are you doing that's skillful? How do you hang out with people without being afraid? Because I think that's one of the dilemmas. This whole mm. diagnostic framework kind of implies mm-hmm. that that people can't cope, <laughs> that mm. there's somehow mm. something that has to be managed and that somehow the professional has to be across this thing that has to be managed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and look, I, yeah, totally. And I... I I was on Facebook today, more fool me, on a mental health nursing group. Might post this podcast on there. Um, and um, some someone posted an old advert for Haloperidol. Mm. And there was lots of comments. And, of course, there was lots of people saying, yeah, thank goodness we don't do it like that anymore mm. sort of thing. But then there was this sort of side discussion about, well, what someone said, well, what are you, are you saying that we should just let people get more sick and be more risk to themselves and others? And that's where, you know, they didn't mean that as a harshness. They meant positively, yes. no, we want to get on top of this thing. Mm, yeah. And, of course, I've left a post saying, well, it wouldn't be possible to get more sick if you don't have a disease. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> you know, and if you look at mental health nursing and you look at Gertrude Schwing and Joyce Travelby and Hildegard Petplow, any mental health nurse that listens to this will know that, Mental health nursing started off as a custodial thing, mm. and then we had some incredible feminist theorists, or feminist-orientated theorists, who demonstrated that the actual art or skill or, or role of a mental health nurse was to form human-to-human relationship. Mm. Yeah. And in that space, even the doctors and psychiatrists would say sometimes about Hildegard Peplau, gosh, it, appear, it appears that Ms. Pet, uh, Miss, uh, Miss uh, Schwing, sorry, the, the nurse, Miss Schwing prepares the patients 
for the doctors to do their work. Mm. And although it was a patronising misogyny, uh, it, it, it was also really interesting because there was an acknowledgement mm. that just being with a person mm. was what allowed the person to be available and, to others. And when you read, read Gertrude Schwing's book, she talks about what she did do. Mm. And it was just really being quite responsive to a person in a like really ordinary, like sit down, have a cup of tea kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear she was doing the work. Not, she was absolutely doing it. Not <laughs> that talking is the about work. It. Yeah. yeah. She wasn't preparing them for no. the doctors to do their work. Yeah, thank She you. was doing the doctor's work and then the doctors would step in in this place of authority and, oh, this is yes. easy. Now this person is in human relationship and... Feels safe again. Yeah. <laughs> and Gosh, and uh, there's one story in her book where she talks about a person who's supposedly catatonic and... Um, I think this person's being like tied to a bed and restrained and there's yeah. all kinds of horrible things going on. And, um, and she sits with them and talks to them and they settle right down. And, yeah. and I'm just imagining this doctor going, oh, gosh, this person's ready for the work now. And it's like, well, hang on a second. That's right. The work of <laughs> the distress is now like it's all resolved, love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I, ju I just think this speaks to this such broad problem that, it's, it's not quite like that. And that was in the 1940s when Gertrude Schwing was doing this work and Frieda Reichmann, a, a very well heard about uh, psychoanalyst and psychiatrist acknowledging Gertrude's work. But we're still in that structure. You know, there's still this hierarchical model. And it's not to say that all medical psychiatrists are, are trying to fulfil that role. I'm not saying that. But within our society, there is still a structure. The Royal College of Psychiatry have written the guidelines. Mm of how the rest of us will fall into line mm. about treating schizophrenia yeah. and psychosis. So at that point, the rest of us, you know, will only provide a partial role within that. Mm. And somehow we need to flatten this out. So we, we talk on here about peer work, and there's this idea at the moment that peer work is needed, peer-led services everywhere. Mm. I, I agree with that on one level, and I also agree, I also wonder how do we... How do we create a flat space where people have access to all the different things that they might mm, need, mm. rather than swinging from psychiatrists owning the labels to peer work leading the spaces? Mm -hmm. And and how do we hold the spaces for everyone? Yeah. So a peer work is not allowed to have any. A peer work is not allowed to have any professional training, perhaps, and a psychiatrist or a therapist isn't allowed to have any personal experience. You know. It's weird because because <laughs> both. The opposite of yeah, both exactly. of those exactly. The reality absolutely. is. The reality is. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's just a, an interesting journey of how we fall back into the diagnostic traps without even noticing it, I think. Mm. Um, and I'm mindful um, of the T-shirts we're wearing today because yeah, I've got a T-shirt with dissociocodic on and yes. so has producer Dan. And yours says, stop forced mental health treatment. Yeah. Um, and I like that mental health's even in, in inverted commas. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. Stop forced treatment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. This was from Oryx Cohen. He brought yeah. these over. I think that's so important. Like, you know, people are oh, just laughing because, like, it's just a horrible but mm. Just, like, some days I just takes my breath away how, you know, people can be told that they've got, you know, uh, intellectual disability. Well, no, they've, on, they've had 20 years of being on a drug yes. that makes it so they can't speak very clearly because they're inhibited. Yes. And, you know, we met a gentleman a while back who was we were told was catatonic. 
and um, the report had some very strange things to say about him, <laughs> yeah. about what proved he had catatonia. And, um, and when we met him, there wasn't anything catatonic about him. He was talking yeah. to us and he was able to articulate what he wanted to say. And, and so then it makes me wonder what filter is the psychiatrist filtering this label through? You know, yeah, as yeah. as you say, like, is it because he's so drugged? Or is it because yeah. he's afraid and so he doesn't speak very much when the psychiatrist is around? You yeah. know, like many things might be going on. Well, and, and then I think, you know, you said someone's been on a drug for 20 years and that's impacted on their, their, their kind of levels of sedation, yeah. broadly speaking. Yeah. And then perhaps, you know, we know that anti certain antipsychotics actually cause the very in quotes, brain changes or brain damage mm. that are said to be about the disease of schizophrenia. Oh my God. And actually it's bullshit, you know. Haloperidol create, causes um, atrophy in the brain yeah. and and changes the way the brain is. And yet we say that's a mental disorder. I think that's just worth pausing for a second because like, well, the, the, view, the listeners can't see that I've, my head is in my hands because it hurts my head to think about that. Um, mm. What I want to say about that is that, you know, this is the difficulty. So there are brain studies that show, <laughs> and some people use this, that we can show the schizophrenia as a brain disease because of the atrophy of the brain. Yeah. But there's not been any studies on people who haven't had years and years and decades, actually, of antipsychotics. Yeah. And so what what do we know <laughs> about someone who's had supposed schizophrenia for 20 years yeah. who hasn't been medicated and their brain and a person who's had supposed schizophrenia for 20 years and has been on multi, like polypharmacy yeah. for 20 years and has had this atrophy of the brain and then we're trying to say like this this ev- it somehow becomes evidence. Yeah. It makes my blood boil. And, and to add to that, then there was that study that came out a couple of years ago where people who were, hadn't had antipsychotics yes. were put on haloperidol and in 12 months we could scan the brain and see the changes. Mm-hmm. So we know that the drugs cause this, yeah. as does trauma, Yeah. and yet we continue to fall back into that nonsense. Mm. But I also wanted to say, when we silence people by sedation for 20 years with mm-hmm. polypharmacy mm-hmm. and heavy drugs, it's not only that they, the, it, it, the process of dialogue and communication is hard people lose skills you know if you put someone in prison mm. they lose the skills of employing applying for jobs if they're in prison for 20 years because they don't have to do it they don't, they're not up to date with the narrative of life because they've been isolated mm. and that's also what we do when we drug people and if they're isolated from community and social that's situations right. then uh, all of a true. sudden they seem like they can't interact with other people it's just not true is it <laughs> yeah mm. And that's what we see. We're fortunate enough to see in our clinic and some many of our collaborators, mm. when you provide environments where people are allowed to come back into connection and relationship. Yeah. And, and I know we've been con- controversial today talking about what it might look like to see someone who, who is using mental health services. And I'm not meaning any negative about that. But when you invite people to come back into meaningful, equitable relationship, suddenly those deficits that have been identified and referred to don't exist. Well, I think that's what's so important to just keep... I feel like... I know we mentioned this one in another podcast, but it needs to be said over and over. We just don't see much madness in here. People ring us and say, I've got to bring my mad son, daughter, brother, partner in, 
and we kind of get a bit excited to finally meet one of these mad people and then they come into the room and they're like he's never like this yeah. and yeah. and well, so that's the most we've heard them talk in six months or that's 12 right. months yeah. yeah yeah all right look this is heavy but good so we're going to go to a break and we're going to come back afterwards and and um i'm not sure where we're going to go yet well i've been having some thoughts i know i want to hear from rory yeah because i'm, I'm interested in um the idea of what 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 do people find helpful? If we're talking about diagnosis not really being helpful and we're talking about yeah. labels not existing and we're talking about the fact that in spaces of relational safety, madness disappears, okay, what do people actually value? How, do, how are people moving forward? And I know Rory has a beautiful, powerful story, so I'm curious about that. There was another thing. Yeah. That I was going to say, but I'll think about that yeah, when I come back. Yeah, bring it back after break. And just while we're on the topic of mm. people's experiences, I we've been hearing some great feedback about mm. the few episodes we've put out so far. I'd like to encourage some people to send us an email if they'd like to. Yeah. Info at humaneclinic.com.au. Yeah, lovely. Um, if you have something that you'd like to hear us discuss or something to contribute and let us know whether you're happy for it to be discussed on the podcast or if you'd just like to give us some personal feedback, some anonymous feedback, we'd really like to hear from you. Great. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We'll see you after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's good to see you guys. Yeah, it's good to be back. So Steph's going to take you into the second half, I think. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, what works and what we hear works and, you know, it's often not the models we, you know, it's not CBT and it's not acceptance commitment therapy, it's not DBT that we hear works. Um, I think sometimes it's something creative and what is really deeply important to the person in the moment. Yeah. Um, and I know that I've heard some of Rory's story and I've always loved some of the things that I've heard, so I wondered whether maybe you'd be happy to share, Rory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've just remembered a part of my story that I don't think I've told you, told you guys. So, mm. you know, it was kind of at the end of a fairly rough decade of ups and downs, maybe more downs than ups. And, um, you know, things were quite, I was in quite a lot of distress after a few personal experiences happening in my life and in response to those. So I'd sought help from a GP and was really, you know, I sat down in the GP's office and expressed that I was having a really hard time and I couldn't engage in anything. I was just overwhelmed, stuck in my bedroom, couldn't get out. And this and said, you know, I want a mental health plan so I can try and find someone who can help me. And the GP turned to me and said, oh, you've got a... a Bachelor of Arts, um, why don't you just do another year of teaching and then you can uh, get a teaching job and everything will be okay. Nice. And so why don't you go away and think about that and if you're still feeling down <laughs> in another week, maybe we can talk about a mental health plan in another session. <laughs> and I just, I just never felt so low in all my life that it was the first time I'd reached out wow. for help from somebody and he hadn't heard me. Ooh. There wasn't yeah. even a second appointment made. It was just, oh, he, you know, he, he, he was really uncomfortable with the things I was saying in the room yeah. and he wasn't prepared to go there mm. and he wasn't prepared to do what needed to be done, even the referral that I was screaming out for. 
Anyway, so that was, I bounced off. Things got worse again. Um, I had the support of um, my two best friends, Josh and Danica, who were just with me every step of the way. My mum and dad as well. Uh, and then, so eventually I went to a mental health GP who did listen to my story and I clearly expressed that I wasn't dealing with a set of circumstances that had happened mm. to me in life, a set of experiences. And he said, oh yes, look, I hear what you're saying, but it sounds like things haven't shifted in a long time. So I hear what you're saying that you don't want any medication, but more than likely you, you're going to have to have some medication. I'll refer, <laughs> I'll refer you to this psychologist. So I had this referral to a psychologist on the horizon. Things were getting worse. I was back at my mum and dad's house. Um, kind of my distress was escalating. And then we got to a point when mum and dad were quite open to what do you want? What do you need? So I said I need help. So they tried to find me a doctor to go to. Um, and then my dad's a surfer. Mm -hmm. As, as Matt would describe a middle-aged Australian longboarder. <laughs> Which I don't describe in glowing terms. No. I'll, I'll own that. No. They're generally in Bali being pretty bloody yeah. miserable towards everyone else. Anyway. My yeah, dad, sorry, sorry. My dad's anyway. one of the good ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good, good. Uh, anyway, so, and then so my dad said, <laughs> well, why don't, what if we, you know, go to Bali for a week? We could go down to Madawi where it's not too busy and... You know, we could spend some time there. And then I remember I went up to my bedroom and I got on my computer and I had the kind of psychologist appointment on the horizon and then I did some researching and I was looking at Flores Island and it just seemed like this really lovely little island where there wasn't too much going on. So I said to Dad, what if we went over to Bali, you can go surfing, we'll hang out for a while and then I'll go off to Labuan Bajo in Flores and see how that goes and let's not worry about this psychology appointment that where they're <laughs> going to prescribe me some medication and dad was like yeah let's do that so we had a beautiful week together wow. really reconnected ourselves dad would go surfing i'd sit on the beach play some guitar hang out have a couple of bintangs and dinner in the night and slept in a room that had two single beds in it so we were really mm. together you know mm. we, we were sleeping in the same room Adult son and father it was really amazing, and then, wow. then the level of trust that mum and dad had in me. Dad went home; they were happy for me to go off. So I got on this little Garuda Airlines flight, landed in Labuan Bajo, and spent about a month on this beautiful island, um, connecting with the community there. Oh. At a certain point, the people that I would hang out with started asking me, "Oh, do you live here now?" <laughs> And it was just a small, a small town, a community. They brought me in. I'd hang out with the guys in the band at the local bar and slowly things just seemed better, felt better. And then I actually cut my time short there because I was ready to come home. And I guess that was the beginning of my journey to now being a therapist at the Humane Clinic and being able to offer people somebody who wants to hear about what's going on and the experiences yeah. that have led mm. to the situation rather than diagnosing and medicating. And, yeah. So yeah. the first thing I love about that story is the fact that your dad was like, what, what would be helpful, Rory? Mm. And you were sort of, oh, I don't know, I've got the psychologist, oh, I'm a bit, a bit unsure, Dad. And he goes, do you want to just go to Bali? Yeah. And it was sort of like I love this idea that 
Maybe what would be useful is not working so hard to figure it out, but just taking some time to be yeah. with your experience yeah. or something and be mm. supported and connection. And, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, suppose, I suppose what comes up for me immediately is, you know, I can hear that you, your family had the resources to go to Bali and then you were able to go and do that and that was really beautiful. Mm. I also know your story a bit more so I know there's been... You know, in that story, it was a much elongated experience. You know, you'd reached out numerous times or yeah. different times. Yeah. So there's this family spirit and that could be family or friends. Also, Josh and Danika, your friends, you know. But also, and this is a bit pointless as a discussion in one sense, but it comes up for me. I'm not really asking you, but I wonder how much it costs for your month in Bali and, uh, and, and uh, the islands. And then have you used mental health services since then? No. Okay, so if you'd had your 10-week mental health care plan with a psychologist and you'd seen your GP a couple of times in that and perhaps taken one prescription, it would have cost more. Well, I can tell you, I think my room was $10 a night where I was staying. Yeah. Right on the beach, so I'd wake up every morning to this beautiful, peaceful... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I know it's a sort of mute point because we're never going to move there in mental health Mm. services, but... You know, in England, there was a, one of my lecturers at uni, he had written the psychosocial support plan and there was a, enough room in the mental health GP plans in England at the time, it's changed now, to, to give people a three-day break at a hotel over a weekend. Mm. So that could be a response mm. to someone. And this, so then that's not that far from what you're saying. Mm. And uh, yeah, and I am, uh, that does sit with me that my family, although they're not extremely wealthy, had the resources mm. to help me go to Bali or dad to come to Bali with me. I had a little bit of money. Uh, And especially, you know, working in homelessness after that and seeing that people with no resources just don't even have this little gap to, to have, to find this break in this space. And I guess that's why we, the clinic as well, try and do, you know, an element of our work free of charge or reduced charge in recognition Mm. that, you know, a section of the community doesn't have the same resources even to be able to follow these alternatives. So there's one option and that's what you pigeonhole into. And mm, that's a very hopeless yeah. situation to be in. But but I don't and if we you know if we think about the system and the structures of the system, it's not going to cost any more. No. So I'm I, I'm glad you had that opportunity. But I, my point I suppose is absolutely as you're saying, it's not going to cost any more. And that's before we even go into um, funding yeah. The money we spend on medication yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I'm just really interested in, um, I know some of your story too, Rory, and I think what's fascinating to me, or not even fascinating, is just um, important to mention, is that, you know, your parents were with you and your friends were with you over this long journey. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just some random, okay, we're going to go to Bali at, at some point. It was you going home and being in a difficult place and then just going, we're not worried, we're here, we're going to be with you, you'll get through this, we totally know you will. Um, Whereas I think a lot of families, when their loved one comes into distress, they're scrambling like, oh, my God, what do we have to do? We have to find a professional. This isn't okay. And, um, you know, I think about my experiences and I'm so grateful that my husband has been just unflappable. Mm. I'd see that. Yours and David's relationship and the support you provide each other, yeah, yeah it's really just, yeah. I really connect with that and that's mm. my kind of family experience as well and how you are for 
your boys as well. It's very, you know, it's very close to home. Mm. So I'm just wanting to think about that. What if we had, because, you know, I get there's lots of people out there, their families and their experiences in in social settings is not one where it's easy to find, uh, like, connection, you Mm. know. And so what if we uh, offered services where there was um, genuine spaces for... Um, genuine spaces for acceptance really that's what it comes down to my husband accepted me your parents accepted you these are the spaces you can just turn up and be accepted and yeah so my mum would often ring me and just you know have a bit of a chat and then somewhere in the conversation she'd pop in and how are you feeling within yourself? <laughs> and I used, I used to love it. Even when I didn't give her an answer, I just used to love that she'd pop that in there and she was always there for me to have these, you know. Mm. Is there anything that you'd like to say? Yeah. It's kind you know, of not, ig- not ignoring the elephant. Yeah, it, yeah, know? exactly. Even if yeah. we don't know what to do about it, the elephant's mm. there in the yeah. room. Yeah. You know, it reminds me as well, and I, I, when I was going through the system, I, I, my friend had a knee operation. Mm-hmm. He's an accountant mm. and... Uh, his partner and him lived in this house and, and um, he had a knee operation and he invited me to come and help him rehab from his knee operation and I was, you know, in and out of hospital on three or four antipsychotics. I was not much help, it would seem. Uh, and, uh, but that kind of generosity of spirit that I was still a value in that social network, social friendship. Mm. And he wasn't patronising me. You know, I did go and do bits and pieces mm. Mm. But it was, it was not about what I could or couldn't do. It was the same as you two are talking about, that kind of spirit that we're not just going to write this person off mm. because they're in distress and we don't know what to do. We're going to continue to treat them and be with them as we would in any other moment of their life. Mm. Yeah, and that they, they have value. You yeah. Know? <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that's just so powerful. Yeah. Is, um, one of the times I was having a really difficult time and I um, gate-crashed my best friend's her son was having a birthday party and I gate crashed the party. I'd been invited, I didn't gate crash. But I was in a lot of distress and I, I was thinking I could manage it. But when I got there, everyone was so lovely to me, I kind of dissolved in a bit of a puddle of tears and, and I felt terrible because I felt I'd ruined it. And she just said to me, she said, you haven't ruined it. Like your vulnerability here, Stephanie, is a gift to everybody, you know. And, <laughs> yeah, and I just love that. It's like she valued, I had a contribution and that is, I had something to offer in my vulnerability and they had something to offer me in supporting me in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just having this waterfall of memories of just beautiful moments of connection that these people yeah. in my life offered me. Like my best friend Josh, you know, he'd give me a hug in the kitchen when I was, he could tell I was, you know, feeling mm. a bit wobbly or my voice started yeah. to mm. quiver a bit like it just did then, you know. Yeah. So, you know, these two blokes, son of a builder and son of a fisherman, in their, in their kitchen, in their rental house, yeah, just having a big hug, you know. <laughs> Look, I just, I just want to acknowledge that because when you were talking earlier, there was I could hear your voice changing, and I, I just really want to acknowledge and, um, you know, thank you really mm. for bringing bringing you and all of you mm. to this podcast because in the first half we were talking about stuff that might have felt a bit more edgy, mm. but I think. You know, the gift of you bringing bringing this part of your life journey is that we've all been able to go, oh, yeah, 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 I can recognise an experience in me that relates to that and and that's made us probably all feel that little bit closer. And it's that great example in that moment when we all 
in you know the listeners can't see us but in the room we're all looking at each other as we're connecting <laughs> and kind of going gosh <laughs> this feels emotional or, or valuable or whatever and it's that thing you say Steph about we've all got a lived experience of being human mm, yeah. so your experience you can relate mm. to Rory's and I can relate mine to both of yours and, and mm. you know that's the gift isn't it is if it we is. can take what Rory's talking about that vulnerability and 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 let that be the gift let that be the or you said sorry about your friend if we can let that be the gift that we can all relate to mm, mm. Yeah. then we're not ill, we're not different. No, and I think there's something really beautiful. I know we're probably getting close to finishing, mm. but um, there's something beautiful about, um, I think now of my clients and other people that come, you know, and sort of whether it's at trainings, talk to us or other places. And I think, um, I, I suppose I'm, I just want to come back to where we started, which was sort of thinking about, what, what is it people say that they value and they need and that is sort of helpful? And I think we have we know people who've just, you know, it's been random things, conversations at a, at a conference. Yeah. There's a woman who sat outside and chatted to one of, um, one of the people over the course of the week at one of our conferences, and then they kept a relationship after the conference. And now um, one, the, the, the person who you might call the, you know, user service user or whatever you want to call that um is going back to TAFE and doing things because of some conversations and then we know other people are like I want to go skydiving with a buddy you know that's the thing that's going to be helpful to me yeah it's like great let's how do we work that out so that it feels oh what would feel empowering to me well I've always wanted to skydive for instance yeah so I think this is where we need to be creative I think and and I just want to touch on that accentuate that idea because sometimes just having one conversation is extraordinarily powerful in connection Mm. you know for some people like me like you Steph spent years in therapy on and on and on (laughs) (laughs) but but you know I I recently talked to my wife about something just Mm. before Christmas and it has changed my experience of the world in one Mm. 45 minute conversation where I felt deeply listened to and deeply able to be held mm. and share something I'd never openly talked quite like it before. Mm. And that's, it's, it's a month ago and it's changed mm. things in my life. And I think we need to, as well as thinking about long-term therapy and all the things that we can offer people long-going psychosocial supports, don't, um, don't look, look past too quickly those moments. Mm of connection in our lives with love, probably with loved ones, probably with friends, family, mm-hmm. or it can be a random person, but mm-hmm. where we get deeply, deeply listened to. Mm. And that, it can change something. Mm. I'm not alone anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel quite emotional. Mm. <laughs> I'm just sitting here reflecting on knowing that Katie, your wife, had been there for you and mm. it's sort of brought this big change and... I just feel so grateful that you've had that experience, you know. Yeah, yeah, I do. Mm. Well, and shout out to Katie. I know she'll be chuffed that she's going to mention. <laughs> yeah. <on> the- <laughs> yeah, I don't want to underestimate the seriousness yeah, of what yeah. we're talking about, but Katie loves true crime um, <laughs> podcasts, and um, she's desperate for us to do a reawaken true crime podcast. Right. So okay. my thoughts are that we do the true crime. Of diagnosing someone. Oh, but that's a little bit mischievous. I do love that mischievousness. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. So, big shout out to Kate. Yes. <laughs> All right, look, we probably ought to wrap it up. We'll come back with another podcast next week. And um, look, thank you again, Rory, for, for being here. You know. Thank you, you two, for providing the space for me to be myself. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Steph. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. See you next week. See you. Everywhere people, in every place, all of the countries and each race need your hope. That's what this world is in need. Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed. Hope is the thing that stops you bleed. And hope is the irie in the weed. So give hope and live hope. And when your kids are hungry, feed them hope. If the system bleeds you dry, have hope. If the situation makes you cry, have hope. Cause now it's time to dry your eyes and hope. But that'll keep your dreams alive, I hope that you hope Cause everyone's future is resting on your hope Can take the worst thing and turn it around Hope can find the lost that was not to be found Hope can make the loser them stuck in ground and Hope can turn your pennies right back into pounds Cause hope can be rebuilt even when it's been killed And if you believe, your hope will be fulfilled But people lied, just to raise your hope Just to make you think that they're helping you cope they're selling you eggs without no yolk They're wearing you down until your will is broke This ain't real hope, they don't feel hope They real hope and deal hope and turn it into false hope Then we give up on this world like it's a sinking boat We let each other drown instead of flinging the rope We're turning the place into some kind of joke But we can't laugh, we can't lose hope In these times while they commit these crimes Because there's nothing else out here keeping us afloat Hope is elusive, a glint in the eye That something is exclusive I think they can buy Or make excuses They just sit and ask why Our mistakes are conclusive Hope will just die But I wouldn't lie Singing all lullaby Give hope a try And hope gets high You'll be bereaved But you'll also receive Have hope can be deceived Truth is got to believe And hope don't let it leave Or ever receive Just hope And then one day You're going to succeed You can't live without hope Don't go without hope Doubt hope will keep you warm when you're shivering with cold Hope will make you young when you're tired and old Hope can make a bright man hearty and bold And hope can find the truth that has never been told Cause some people take hope and some people fake hope But you are the people, you people here You're the ones that I feel are sincere You're raising my hope, will hold your hand when you're feeling secure Hope will find a way through any locked door Sure, make a point to the wise, even when there's a floor. Hope will fill your belly when you think you need more. Stop disease when there isn't a cure. Hope will do it all, and so much more. And so much more. And so much more. And so much more. Hope will do it all. And so much more